Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. As it is each Sunday, it is a joy and a privilege to be with each of you in this unique season of worship here at Eastside as we continue to worship digitally in light of the pandemic and our attempts at practicing as much caution and contributing as much as we can to the collective health of our planet and community as possible. If you're a guest with us this morning, something that we ask everyone to do every Sunday, whether they're a guest or a member or a regular attender, is to click on that uh, check-in form in the comments section of the live stream. Fill that out quickly. If you're a guest with us, it just gives us a chance to know your name and to thank you for being with us in worship. And if you're a member or regular attender, it helps us to... um, Just keep track of you all and know how folks are doing and to lift up your prayer requests. So please take a minute and fill that out. It is tremendously helpful to our leadership. Well, this morning brings us to the theme of way pavers, as we're calling it this morning in our message, as we continue on our series that we have titled Aspire, a series that essentially is about are sort of rooted and grounded in grounded conviction as a people of faith, as Christian people, who take seriously this notion that we indeed are made in the image of our maker, of God. And because we actually take seriously this notion, we don't just give lip service to the idea of humanity, of human beings being made in God's image, We look to the creator, to the maker, to the divine parent when we ask questions about our own existential realities. How, how, How ought we to be living our lives? What should we aspire to be, to become? What are we capable of? This series is in essence about taking this claim that we are made in God's image And then looking to God, to the images of God, the the picture of God that we see displayed through Scripture, what do we learn about our Creator, and how can we then move as a collective, as human beings, as a church, towards seeking to aspire to embody and to embrace these characteristics that we see in God? from God being creative and creating to making a world, to building it out, to when that world begins to to, to fall apart and to turn in on itself, God not cutting and running, but offering this sort of relational resilience and sticking with humanity, seeking to bring about redemption. God, who is faithful, who is resilient, who is always coming after us. This morning, We come to this idea that we see in God of way paving, of thinking about those that are coming, about doing our part to prepare this place, this planet, our lives, the spaces that we have access to in such a way that those who will come next will find it to be 
to be rich, to be full, to be in a state that does not look as though it was left in disrepair, but was left with intention. And to get at this morning's theme of way paving, we're going to look at a text that would normally be read during Advent as we're preparing our own hearts and minds and souls for the advent of the Christ, of of the Christmas celebration. But this morning we're going to be reading of John the Baptist, and he is found in all four Gospels, and he always precedes the, the ministry and the work of Jesus. So let us look at our way paver, the Baptist. From Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, and friends, as I read, I invite you to embrace a posture of receptivity and to listen for God's word for us. Luke writes that this son of Zechariah, the priest, John, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for sin as is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah writes, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then John the Baptist says to the crowds who have gathered to listen to him and be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, because we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down, is thrown into the fire. The crowd asked John, what should we do? (laughs) In reply, John says to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Anyone who has food must do likewise. And then Luke tells us that even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, well, teacher, what should we do? John said to them, you should collect no more than is prescribed for you. No, no extra cut on the side. And there were soldiers there. They also asked John, well, what should we do? And, And John says to them, do not extort money from anyone by your power, through threats, through false accusations. Be satisfied with the wages you receive. As the people were filled with expectation and all of them were questioning in their hearts concerning this man, John, whether or not he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one is coming more powerful than I, and he, he, I am not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, John the baptizer, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.
Holy and gracious God, on this morning I ask that you might use these words that I have prepared to be your word for your people in this time. God, I ask that you would speak through them and where and as necessary speak in spite of me. And I ask God that as I preach the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts scattered across distance, even across time as folks receive this message at different points throughout this week, God, I pray that all of it would indeed be found good, right, pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, our great rock, God, our redeemer, God who continues to make a way for us. In Christ's precious name I pray, amen. Well, if you live in the Atlanta metro area and you have the opportunity to sometimes go outside, which arguably we have less of an opportunity of that these days, but you've probably come across these signs that say something to the effect of the Path Foundation or the Stone Mountain, the Stone Mountain Trail. If you live anywhere inside the city or even kind of on the outskirts, you may have come across these paths, these signposts. And about a month and a half ago, I was on the, the eastward stretch of this path made by this path foundation, headed out to, to that old bastion of, of racism, <laughs> Stone Mountain. And I was pretty far out on this path. There's this this trail that goes all the way from, from Atlanta to Stone Mountain. And it was pretty far out when it occurred to me as I was riding my bicycle that I had been to this section of this path before. It's a path, it's a section of the path that goes by this giant seminary, seminary, sem, cemetery. Ooh, that's gonna get me some hate mail. <laughs> this giant cemetery and as I was passing it on my bicycle, I realized that I had been by this scene before, and it had been over a decade ago. I was training for a half marathon, actually, with my brother, who was in seminary at the time, as was I, and we ran by this particular portion of this path. And it was really strange, over a decade later, riding my bicycle by it and just having this overwhelming sense of memory hitting me, and like, how have I been here before? And it probably took me a couple more miles to put all the pieces together to remember. But the rush of emotions and memories and images from, from years ago, as I began to remember how all of that went together, led to other thoughts and other memories of that time period. And it was really interesting and unique to come upon something I hadn't seen that long ago, but to recognize it and then to unpack where and how and when it was that I had had that experience. And as sometimes these kinds of experiences have in our lives, I've kind of gone back to that moment where I biked upon this scene that I remembered on this path. And I've reflected on the fact that as I was having this memory of the path, out across these rolling hills in this finely manicured cemetery were all these headstones with people's names on them and sentiments engraved on many of them under the names. 
Ways that people remember the people who are being remembered by the cemetery itself and by the inscriptions on these stones. And it occurred to me that, that especially at that point, I didn't know much about who was behind the PATH Foundation, who was behind building this beautiful um, paved path all the way out to Stone Mountain for me to ride my bicycle on and to get exercise with. But it was interesting to me to, on the left side of me, heading towards Stone Mountain, that has its own kind of carved out issues, um, <laughs> how much more relevant the paved path under my feet was to my bicycle and to my body and to my experience than were the, the headstones on all of these graves. Because I went home and I looked up the PATH Foundation after that and I learned that it was actually, it actually came into being by three friends who were out on a bike ride in, I think, 1991. And then on that bike ride, they said to each other, you know what really sucks is pedestrian and bicycle life in Atlanta? And you had other major cities and they have so much more infrastructure for people trying to get out and be active and be healthy. So what did these three do? They decided they were gonna do something about it and they formed a foundation and they, they brought other people on board. And today you come to Atlanta and you experience and enjoy these paths that have now kind of spread across the city and out even past 285. The path it occurred to me in those moments as I was sort of writing on it, it was kind of like a, a, a horizontal headstone that was, that was speaking to their contribution to humanity, to their ongoing contribution to all the humans who, well, I'm not sure if the, the folks who founded it are still alive or not, but all the humans who were going, going to continue to benefit from these beautiful bicycle and running and walking paths that these three friends said, Atlanta really needs something like this. And the more I've, I've kind of thought about this whole memory and story and relationship to headstones and to a path that was created, especially in this morning's context of being way pavers ourselves, it's occurred to me that I've never actually taken the path all the way to the destination. I've never taken the path to Stone Mountain. I have ridden on multiple, multiple sections of this path all throughout Atlanta, especially on the east side, there's all these signs that say Stone Mountain Path, X, you know, XYZ, Stone Mountain Path. Places that are so far away from Stone Mountain, you're like, how is this even relevant? Because I'm taking the path from this part of Atlanta to this part, but they've got the destination and all of these signs, but I've never taken the path all the way to Stone Mountain. I've been to Stone Mountain, but not via the path, and hopefully, you know, I will. But at this point, I've greatly enjoyed the work that these three humans invested, and I've never even been to the destination that all this signage says that we're supposed to be heading toward. It's kind of interesting. 
And it got me thinking about how interesting it would be if one of the headstones on one of the graves uh, at that cemetery, if it read something to the effect of so-and-so, creator of a path to nowhere. So-and-so, a creator of a path to nowhere. How interesting would that be? It would definitely cause some of us to stop and to do a double take, I think. And it made me think back to one of my best memories as a, as a child, being, being that I would go out and play in the woods with my siblings and my friends. And one of our very, very favorite things to do in the woods, especially at the beginning of the summers, was that we would go out and we would cut paths, cut trails. And because our parents were wise and we were rambunctious children, we did not have the proper tools to cut these paths. So no, we did not have machetes. We had whatever sticks that we could forage around for and that were strong enough for us to use to, to sort of whip and to whap away all the vines and poison ivy and poison oak and all the other poison things I'm sure that were growing and to, to, to create these paths out in this cherished beloved woods and we would do this work for hours and hours and hours. And we used these sticks and we would Imagine ourselves as like medieval knights whacking away at the enemies as, as we were destroying poison ivy and weeds and vines and growth. And slowly but surely we would. We would make progress. We would make, a, make an inlay into the woods, the thickly overgrown, undergrown forest. And, and because we didn't have proper tools, our paths would like zigzag and zag and zig and go this way and that because, uh, you know, a new tree fell last year or three new trees fell. So the path might have gone that way last year, but this year it's got to work its way around the tree because Lord knows that our parents kept the chainsaws locked up, thank <laughs> God. So we'd have to work around things that our tools couldn't quite get us around. And the more I've thought about all of this in relationship to the fact that I've never even made it to the destination of the Stone Mountain Path, is the fact that, like, as we were spending all of this energy as kids out in the woods, beating down this foliage to make these paths, our paths pretty much quite literally went to nowhere. And you know what? We were fine with that. It probably never even occurred to us because for us it was just, does it get us deeper into the mysterious, glorious reality that is the woods? Does it get us deeper into the reality that is life, being alive, being human, being, being? Does it get us deeper and richer and further into the mystery, the capital M mystery. Is it a path to somewhere? Is it a path to nowhere? Is it a path to now, here? In my early adult life, I remember the first time I read a chapter by the now late theologian and Catholic priest Brennan Manning, and he had a one of his chapters devoted to this idea of nowhere, of now, here. 
And he describes what, what he describes as the most beautiful sound or song in the world is the music of nowhere. The dance to now to here. I think it's interesting as I get older and I reflect back on being younger is the way in which children kind of intuitively, I think, often get this. Where does the path lead? Nowhere. Now? Here? But when we get to this, this age, maybe it's in our teenage years in high school as we're thinking about college, we, we start to like, everything's about the next desti destination, everything's about the next road mark, the next, the, next, the next thing or goal or movement. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, I wonder if Manning makes a really important point that there is an argument to be made that the most beautiful music in the world, the most beautiful dance that can be danced is to the music, to the sound of nowhere, to the reality of now and here. This morning we come together in this Aspire teaching series to speak to way pavers to being a people who are intentional in our lives about thinking about who comes after us, about what is to come next, about what kind of way our lives are or not putting in place a better world for those to come. And it, and it begs the question for me at least, maybe for you too, because I think sometimes we Christians, some of us maybe who are raised in the church, we have this unhealthy view of sacrifice. And what I, what I mean by this is, is we hear way pavers, right? We hear the next generation and we immediately go to, that means that I have to sacrifice. And by sacrifice, what we mean is I have to live less of a life. I have to, to experience or to do or to spend or to consume, fill, fill in the blank. Somehow I become less so that those who are to come after couldn't be more. And I, I want to push back on that notion this morning because I'm not con entirely convinced it's either healthy or true or even entirely Christian. Because I think that if we were to go up to John the Baptist in the midst of his teaching and preaching and, and arguably kind of uh, incendiary metaphors, he did call the crowd a brood of vipers, but if we were to pull him aside and say, John, like, what do you really want to be doing? Like, what do you really, like, how do you really want to spend your life? I, I think John would probably look us in the eyes and say, are you crazy? What do you mean? Didn't you just see that? I just baptized a thousand people for this movement of the coming kingdom of God. And we'd say, right, but, but it's coming. Wouldn't you rather be a part of the kingdom of God when it's here that you're proclaiming the coming peace? And I think John would probably look at us and say, you're missing the point. Because the kingdom of God, yes, it is coming, but it's also here, and I can participate, it, participate in it right now by the way I live my life, by the, by the way that I orient myself, by the way that my mind and my heart are in sync with the reality that is around me, by the way that my behavior 
who I am connects with my core, deepest, most true, valued values inside of me. And I think John might say, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing right now because this is where God has me. This is where I need to be. Was John the baptizer, crazy John with his wild honey and his locusts and his skins, his clothing made from animal skins out in the desert, the son of a priest. That's a, that's a pre-PK if I ever saw one. Preaching and people coming out in droves. And John's life ends early. We know this if we read the story. Israel's pseudo-king puts him away quickly to shut him up. And there's some politics behind that that ends up getting John executed at a young age. But was John leading a meaningful existence in the midst of it? Was John dancing to the music of nowhere, fully to the reality of now, of here, as he was being John, the John that Jesus would come after? That John, that Jesus would come and say, John paved the way, John prepared the way, John made the way for me to come. He set the table, now I'm bringing the food. Does being a way paver mean that we have to essentially sacrifice our own sort of wants or desires or dreams or existence so that those who come might have something? Or can we both dance to the music of nowhere? Can we build a path to nowhere, to now to here that also gets us to Stone Mountain, that also makes life better for those who are to come, that also builds the kingdom and the movement and the reign of God on this planet so that those who come next have that much more given to them to continue building and to continue moving? Can you build a path to Stone Mountain for cyclists, essentially making an argument for environmental justice on the one hand and human health on the one hand, while at the same time fighting the problematic and systemic racial issues embedded literally in Stone Mountain and its culture and its history? I think you maybe can do both. Nowhere, now, here, can we do more than one thing at a time? And you know I'm not talking about multitasking. I'm talking about being a part of something that does more than one thing simultaneously and living lives that, that are doing more, that are accomplishing more than one thing simultaneously. I think being way pavers, builders of a future for those that are to come can be that by crafting a path for those who are to come can we be dancing in the present fully and living lives of richness, of meaning, of fulfillment? A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about resilience as being something that we see embodied in God's relationship to humanity when humanity strays and goes our own way. We see a resilient God who doesn't cut and run, but a resilient God who continues to come back to humanity time and time again, seeking that relationship, seeking to redeem us. 
And one of the realities that we identified, because resilience researchers have identified this as one of the most significant aspects to resilient people that they have studied, it's that they know what their bedrock values are. If somebody says, why do you care about people? Why are people a value? They, have an ant they can go deeper. And why is that important to you? They can go deeper. What are your values? You care about the environment, why? Well, because humans are supported by, why do you care about humans? Because I'm a human and I experience the world and I have emotions and feelings and I have children, so I know what it's like to be one of me and I, and I would want other people to have. Okay, so you care about other people because of experience, like, or, or, or why do you care about aspiring to be anything at all? Well, for us, because we believe we're created in God's image. God is our bedrock assumption, but God's not the God of other, others who maybe speaks to retribution, lex talionis, eye for an eye, vengeance, because that creates humans that then embrace lex talionis, eye for an eye, vengeance. We, know we believe in a benevolent God who is over and above good, so the bedrock assumption for us is that a benevolent, good, gracious God created a humanity, human beings, a human race, in that God's image. Therefore, a bedrock value is that human beings are worthy of the same love, respect, adoration, care, intensity, intention that God is. Because each of us are made in God's image. Knowing our values allows us to be resilient when life gets really hard because we actually know and can answer and can figure out how we got to what we care about. And that's what John is speaking to the crowds about in the text this morning. He tells the tax collectors who were Jewish, if you're gonna collect taxes from your own people for Rome, you better only collect what's being asked of you and not more on the side. Because you say you value being Jewish and value being part of your community, but your behavior betrays that. There's no integrity. There's no integration between what you say you value and how you actually behave in the world. You can't say that you care about people and steal from them. You might care about people and you might steal from them, but you're gonna feel gross in the middle of that because you know that internally your behavior is betraying what you actually truly value. If you believe humans are made in, the God's, in God's image and then you wish harm on other humans or you smile in satisfaction when you see that things have befallen another human being who's done really remarkably nasty things and you have an elation inside of you, yeah, it might be appropriate to feel a little gross at that point because it's out of sync with your value that human beings are created in God's image and loved from eternity by God which means that we have a calling to be and to do and to embody that same attitude towards the other humans in this world. We feel icky when our behaviors and our values aren't synced up. We feel gross and out of line and wrong and weird and just, ah, something's off. Maybe, Maybe you have a behavior that's, that's actually really beautiful, but you don't know why you do it. And maybe this morning's call for you is to like do some of the digging. Like, why do I like helping people? Why do I care so much about animals? Why is environmental justice important to me? Sometimes, sometimes 
children just like get it, but then they spend some, some more time as they grow mature understanding why that was important to them. They, they intuit it. But it's also really important that if you're gonna be doing that hard work out there, if you wanna be resilient, to know why you're doing it and to be able to get down to the bedrock answers for it. A builder might be attempted to be hired by an architect and the builder might look at the plans and say to the architect, well, that's not gonna pass code, that's unsafe, and that over there is just ugly. And that, that builder might value honesty and safety and beauty, right? And the builder says those things to the architect, and the architect says, no, I'm not gonna, I told you, this is what I want you to build. The builder also values trying to offer good service to those who hire the builder. But the builder says, but I got these three other values over here that this value, I, I can't do all of this. So I'm not gonna take this job. I'm gonna say no to that because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't allow me to behave and to live in sync with who I actually am and the behavior that I believe is in sync with what I truly value, my bedrock assumptions about life and about the world, about my integrity. And that could be a sacrificial decision for that builder to make because maybe he's low on work and his employees are starting to get cherry-picked by other builders who are willing to take these jobs and his family is having a hard time paying the bills and a value of his is providing or of her is providing for the family. But if we don't even know what our values are within us because we haven't even done that work, we don't even know what's competing inside of us and what's making us feel that way and, and how our behavior, our way of being might be in conflict. We have to do that work if we wanna know who we wanna be out here and here's how I want to bring this all full circle. We can't even talk about paving a way for a future if we don't know what's important. If we don't know what's important and if we don't really decide what we value as important, is it, is it humanity flourishing? Then that needs to be the rubric. How do we pave the way for humanity to flourish in the future? If, if it's for justice, then what does true justice look like as a society and as a collective? And how are we living our lives now and here and also preparing the way for the future? As John clears the way for Jesus, but also embodies his own calling and his own mission and his own ministry. The Christ, the Christ lived fully present in his life and in his ministry and with his disciples and with those he was ministering to and with. And he was also at the same time building this huge movement that was to come that we're still participating in 2,000 years later. John prepares the way for Christ. John quotes Isaiah. And who comes before Isaiah? We're all building on the next. Are we leaving this world better than we found it? And are we dancing in joy in the midst of the work that God is calling us to do? Because I think we can do both. And I think God wants us to. May it be so in the name of the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, and all God's people typed, amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message. 
and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.